The Center for Teaching and Learning is showcasing faculty innovations in and out of the classroom and creating a space for faculty members to share ideas and learn from each other's experiences. This is one of a series of informal conversations where we ask a faculty member to describe their innovative practices. We're speaking today with Melissa Huey, Assistant Professor in the Behavioral Sciences Department of the College of Arts and Sciences. Melissa joined New York Tech in the fall of 2018. She received her MA from City College of New York and her PhD from Florida Atlantic University. Melissa teaches many courses in the Behavioral Science Department. I won't, I won't name them all, but they include introductory psychology, social psychology, adolescent psychology, parenting and culture, and theories of personality. Melissa also developed a section of NYIT 101, the freshman college success course called Your Closest Companion, How Your Smartphone Has Become Your Window to the World. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And you named a lot of my courses. So. I did. I did. I think I left a few out, though. That, that covers um, a lot of them, though. So. Which course is your absolute favorite to teach? Oh, that is a great question. Um, I really like, I know this sounds nerdy, but I really like teaching statistics because I really like numbers and I kind of like to teach students, like a lot of my content courses is like, this is what we found in psychology. But when we get to the statistics, which is often their junior or senior year, this is how we found it. So this is how you can start to like understand data and understand like, um, you know, information that's presented in the world beyond just this class, even if you're not going to conduct research. And so it kind of really gets to the crux in my opinion, of like the why and how we're doing all these content courses. And so I really like that because students who un start to understand it, I feel like it's eye opening to see like, oh, this is actually how the study was conducted and why they said that, like, you know, aggressive video games lead to aggressive behaviors or whatever findings I had pre presented in the content courses. So I really like that class. Um, and in terms thank of you, thank you so much for listing a course I did not name. That was did you not name statistics? What else? Uh, the other course I was going to say is I like intro because I feel like intro to psychology kind of gets get students excited. Like when I was an undergrad, that's actually what got me on the track of like I always like psychology, but it got me on the track of psychology. I had a really interesting intro teacher and I was like the first time I went to class and was like, wow, this is like actually fun. Like I'm not, I don't even feel like I'm in class. Like I just like, and was enjoying the material and he did all sorts of demonstrations. And so there's always people in my intro class that are just taking it as electives. And I feel like sometimes it's kind of like eye-opening, like they get really excited about psychology. So I like, I enjoy that because I like to see students sort of transform and say like, oh, I actually really like this topic. So those would be my top two, maybe. Thank you. Is there a teacher or a student that you've had that changed how you approach teaching? A teacher or a student I had that, well, I will say actually, it's funny, I just mentioned that the um, teacher that I had in my UMass class, and I can't remember his name, but it was my intro to psych class, really kind of changed my trajectory to want to go into psychology. And in terms of changing teaching, um, I had an advisor, um, Dr. Anne-Marie Yali, who I actually still collaborate with at City College. And she um, really kind of pushed her students. And previous to that, I was an adjunct and a TA. And I, I think I just kind of went really easy because it just made it easier for the students. And it was, everybody was happy, right? It was an easy class. And, you know, I didn't really push the students beyond much um, 
you know, what, what, you know, what they were capable to get an A of. And after having her, I said, wow, I actually really liked being pushed. Like she was very, like, she'd write like detailed information back on our, our two page reaction papers would have two pages worth of notes. And I said, you know what, I actually want to be pushed. And I think my students do too. And after that, I think I sort of upped the threshold of like teaching to, to, to give myself a little bit more of like, you know what, actually I need to be friendly and approachable, but I also need to sort of push my students in a way that I hadn't been pushing them before. So I have to give her, I have to give her credit for that. There's a lot of research that supports that, right? If, if students have a personal connection with you and you say the expectations are high and here's how I'm going to help you get there, they will, they will definitely rise to your expectations. Yeah, it makes sense. I think, I think students appreciate that too. I think in theory, if you ask a student, do you want a really easy class and an easy A, they'll say yes. But I think at the end of the class, they're less fulfilled than if they've actually learned and, you know, like if you ask a student, Hey, do you want an easy A? They'll say, yeah, of course. But do they really want it? No, I think it's more meaningful that I like take the time to give them feedback and that they're not just going to get an A for doing the assignment, but they need to put the effort in and learn. And, you know, um, so yeah, I think that in the end, they're happier and, and more satisfied with the fact that they actually had to make an effort to get that A. So let's talk about the changes that happened when COVID hit. How did you feel back in March of 2020? Wow, now I can say that, right? Because it was 14, <laughs> 15 months ago. How yeah. did you feel when we had to remove, move to remote teaching? Well, I'll be honest. I first didn't believe it. My students came in and they were like, we're going remote. And I was like, that's ridiculous. We're not doing that. <laughs> like, I'll see you guys next week. I was like totally in disbelief that this could even be a plausible thing. Um, and I actually am an advocate for no technology. That semester, I was actually conducting a study where students were required to remove their cell phones from themselves during the class. So it's just so funny because I'm like conducting this research project where my hypothesis is that these smartphones are distracting and they're not going to engage in the class. And then of course, like, you know, a little bit of a slap in the face, all of a sudden they have they literally have to be on their phones or their com- and no computers. It was no computers and no phones was my condition for my class. And, uh, and then of course we move and I didn't believe it at first. And then I felt, you know, a little stressed just because I, I wasn't like, as I said, I was trying to kind of remove technology from the classroom and now I had to like fully embrace technology. Um, so yeah, I was first shell shocked. And then I felt a little stressed because all of my teaching is about like engage, you know, small group activities, discussions, um, attendance is 100% mandatory. And of course, missing one or two is fine. But, you know, like everything is based on the classroom. My whole thing is like, you know, I have work outside of the class, but when you're in the class, I want you to be here, be engaged, be doing the group work, be doing the discussion. So this idea that I all of a sudden had to be online was really overwhelming. So what did you do? Well, <laughs> how, did, how did you how did you move that online? So what I immediately decided was that we were still going to meet, you know, to me, the FaceTime and the interaction is like the, the most important thing. So for me, other than taking, I think, the week of spring break to transition and maybe an extra week just to get students kind of used to the whole Zoom thing. After that, I went right back to, OK, everybody needs to be here and be in class. Like we are still having class. We're meeting a hundred percent, like during the class time. I don't end class. I didn't just because we resume, I wasn't ending classes early. I said, this is to me, honestly, the class time is pivotal. I mean, in college, you're only looking at a three credit course. You're looking at two hours and 50 minutes on average. And that's like, that's the only time that they get to interact with the professor. So that's the decision I made immediately. And, um, 
you know, it started with everybody sort of having these blank screens. And so just, I was like looking at words and then I immediately said, okay, you know, after a couple of weeks of that, I said, this is not going to work. I said, I need you to have your videos on and I need you guys to be sort of coming to class. Like I need to see, I want to see you guys. And like, we're treating it like we're in class, not just you're this in the ethos of the internet and I'm seeing a name on the screen. Um, and so that made a big difference. That was actually what sort of facilitated my ability that this, the fully synchronous full class time with videos on sort of was helped me in a big way to transition this discussion and activity based learning into the online platform. And so then in the summer, we found out we'd be remote in the fall. So when you had the chance to do it with a little more lead time and a little more intentionally, what did you change then? Well, one thing that I did in the summer um, was I prepped. So one thing I did uh, with Dr. Kamarada and Dr. Nicole Kamarada was we prepped statistics online. Um, and that was a difficult class that I was going to be teaching in the fall. And so was she. Um, and we were able to sort of uh, have resources, create resources like YouTube videos. We created kind of like a whole YouTube channel of lessons that didn't take away from the engagement and the fact that I wanted them, everybody fully online, but it allowed them to have additional resources because we weren't going to be in person. So I still had my students meet for the full time. Uh, videos were required to be on um, for the, for the whole time. You know, if somebody wasn't feeling good, they'll message me and say, you know, whatever. there's obviously exceptions, but for the most part, videos were on the whole time. Um, and, but, but what I did over the summer was I started to prep sort of these additional resources because there's aspects to being fully online where if you were in person, you're going to miss that. So just being able to re-engage with the lesson or walk through the slides again, listening to me again, things that like, you know, after class, they would touch base with me or something like that in person, or it's it just a little bit different where we felt like they needed more support. And so we created this entire sort of PowerPoint and then this YouTube channel that allowed them to then go back and say, okay, if you want to hear about One Way Anova again, you can go back and look at, uh, you know, Dr. Huey's video, or you can go back and see Dr. Kamaradin's video. And it just gives additional support that in some ways there's a little bit of a gap when you're not like in the classroom seeing the professor. How did the students respond? The students actually really liked the videos. I didn't really think they would watch the videos. Like, cause again, I'm not somebody who watches a lot of YouTube. My husband likes YouTube, but I, I never have gotten it. I don't see the, the interest of YouTube and so much. And uh, they really, they wanted the link and they asked for the videos and they watched the videos. And then, you know, obviously I had office hours and I tried to meet with them after class at times. So um, they, they did okay. I would say they did, they did well with the transition. I still think it's hard to learn statistics online. You know, there's just nothing, there's just something about not physically (laughs) being there. What'd you say? I would just say it's hard to learn statistics. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's a good point. It's, it's hard to learn statistics. And I think that there's an added challenge online because you're not physically in the classroom. And I think that the students really did thrive with the resources that we provided them. And, you know, my statistics class grades mirrored the grades from the year that they took that the year that I taught statistics fully in person, which was a good sign meant that more or less students are doing the same and it's a challenging course, but having those resources was, was good for them. And then again, having that in-person class with the video on, I think really does make a difference. So if your video is off, I think it's just, you know, it's too easy to get distracted, walk away, you know, the video on kind of makes you accountable. Like you have to at least be in front of the screen, looking at the computer and actively paying attention. But interestingly, I have one more thing to say. I have this research that I did this semester and actually 
it does make a difference if you have your video on in terms of engagement and mindfulness in the class, but not if you make your video mandatory versus encouraged. So I had one condition where that where I looked at faculty that made their video encouraged and one that where they made it mandatory and there was no difference. So I said, maybe next time I'll just make it encouraged. Are you going to publish this? Yeah. Yeah, this is hopefully, <laughs> hopefully I'll write it up this summer. Yeah. Okay. Um, Sometimes in class, there's a moment where everything pulls together almost magically and you and your students are fully engaged and, and the whole class enters a flow state together. Can you tell us about one of those moments? I can. Actually, in my social psychology class, uh, we could, I actually had the students create activities. This was my best activity all semester. I have to say the student, cause it's hard. Some of my activities were all based around group work. So I kind of had to rework trial and error, you know, doing these group activities together. Cause it's still really important for me, for the students to understand how to work as a group and like have that sort of cohesiveness. So I had them, we learned about chapter eight is group processes. And I had them create some sort of group activity that they had to do in the class, had to have the class do. So it's sort of like a flipped type of classroom and, um, and then disseminate that to the class. And that was like, they were supposed to, you know, explain what concept they were extrapolating from the chapter, et cetera. And one of the students came up with a debate about the COVID-19 um, vaccine. And at first everyone was like, you know, I don't really want to get it, but if you're for it, it's okay. And finally, like, I was like, no, I want you guys to, I kind of like interjected. I was like, I want you to have an opinion. Like, I know you have an opinion, whatever you're personally doing out there is fine. And, and they got real into it. Like the entire class, like it ended up being like a 25 minute debate and it was really like heated and people were using facts and pulling up articles. And I was just so happy because I tried to do it with affirmative action which is another big issue that's tackled in social psych earlier in the semester. And everybody just kind of took like the out, like nobody really wanted to have an opinion in one way or another. And it just kind of fell flat. And I was like, man, I really wish I could get them like riled up the way I used to be able to do in the classroom where they're like heated about something. They feel passionate. They want, you know, they want to share their opinions. And it ended up happening with the COVID vaccine debate because it's so relevant right now. Um, and I was just really happy. Like the whole class was engaged, even if they even if they weren't one of the main debaters, you could tell they were like fully paying attention. It was it was a good day. And then at the end of the day, one of my students was like, this was a good class. We all got real riled up. And I was like, yeah, that's what I was hoping for. I want you guys to care about something. So that was that was a really good day, actually, of teaching. Do you think anyone changed their opinion? No, though. <laughs> I honestly <laughs> don't think anybody changed their opinion. <laughs> like everybody left and like they, it didn't work, which was funny because the concept they were demonstrating uh, was group polarization, where if you're in a conversation, you end up more polarized towards a certain side. So maybe it did work, but not it didn't flip. He was trying to get people to flip, but they were polarizing to their same sides. So, no, I don't I don't think so. <laughs> I would like to say yes, but I have to be honest. I don't think they would. <laughs> Um, it's interesting because as, as you know, there's a team of faculty that are working on outcomes for the revised core curriculum. And one of the outcomes that they're going to propose is to be able to distinguish among facts, opinions, and inferences. Oh, that would and be, be open to changing your mind. That's great. So I think that we like need that. 
Yeah. yeah I'm tr- yes, I am. I am trying to do that. That's the idea is that, you know, you try to get students, students have a tendency, everyone has a te- humans have a tendency to think, you know, in terms of black and white, and there's so much gray, you know, you really have to sort of work through that dichotomy. And uh, that's what I try to get students to do. And by having these debates, I had another one and one once, you know, they were supposed to change the person's opinion. It was an attitude. It was the attitudes chapter and they were arguing about pink and yellow and it didn't work. But, you know, just the idea that they're hearing the other perspective, I think, is important and that they're just honestly the idea of getting them comfortable to start to say an alternate opinion is actually something that is one of the mains, the, the first primary steps to getting them you know, engaged and, and just even thinking about it is they, they weren't, they don't even want to talk like with affirmative action. They don't want to say anything because they're very, very worried. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a sensitive topic and they're very worried about offending people. And so I think a debate that I was able to get going to my social psych class at city college 10 years ago, I think it's just, there's a lot of sensitivity around the issues and I want people to be able to talk through those sensitivities because then you can actually see another perspective. So Maria put a question in the chat. She okay. wants to know, since you've taught online in the fall, is there anything you did remotely that you're going to bring back into your in-person classes? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, well, <laughs> this is a silly thing, but one thing that I do, and that actually kind of brings like a lot of lightness to the class and sort of like the camaraderie of the groups. I do a lot of breakout groups. That's the easiest way to stay engaged. But I jump in the breakout groups because if you don't ever go in, you don't know. It's different than the classroom. The classroom, you can kind of oversee. And I usually walk around the class. But in the Zoom breakout rooms, you don't know what's going on. They could turn their screen off and be away for 10 minutes. You got to jump in. But anyways, what I do is I create breakout room names. That's something that I started. And um you know, I think the semester of Zoom started hot and then I think people got a little Zoom fatigued, especially mid-semester towards the end. Um, and the breakout room names, it just kind of like made it like silly. Like it could be anything. It could be like the Tigers, the applesauce packs, or they, they would make like jokes. Like there was two guys that kept getting in the same breakout room. I do them um, automatically usually. And I, you know, they they kept kept getting the same breakout room and they called themselves bromance and, and just kind of like everybody would laugh and it would just bring like a lightness to the day. And I might actually, if we do groups to have that group, have them come up with a group name together, it takes five minutes, three to five minutes. And it's kind of a fun thing. So I might take that back to the classroom next semester if it's feeling like a, a dull day. Um, do just you to keep kinda... them in permanent groups or do you mix up the groups? I mix them up. Um, within the same class, I usually don't recreate every time. So if the yeah, if we're doing multiple breakout rooms, which we do a lot, like we'll jump in, jump back out, jump in, jump back out. I usually will just keep the same group and they kind of develop that day sense of camaraderie. But beyond that, unless it's like a semester long group project, like we do those um, semester long research projects for research methods, obviously they have to be in the same group. Um, but beyond that, I, I change it up because then they get to work with different people. And, you know, there's in the Zoom environment, you don't have those little like moments in the beginning of class where you might like sit have to sit next to somebody else or like say hi or so so that I think kind of allows that to still happen if you're changing the breakout rooms. How do you think higher ed is going to be changed as a result of this pandemic? That's a good question. Um, Well, the obvious answer is that I think more classes are going to be online and more resources are going to be online. Um, I think that teachers that have been doing things solely 
like paper and pencil type of way have sort of been forced in this transition to move online. And then that will allow the majority of like assignments and grading and some of those conveniences that are actually good to have the technology for um, will be permanent now. Like I think that more professors are using Canvas, more professors have adapted to be able to use online tests. And, and those are things like Beyond class time, I'm a very big in-person class time, but I, I use Canvas for my assignments because it just makes sense. Why wouldn't I have it? You know, like I, I try to do things that are convenient for the students and that help them to succeed. And one of those things is like is using Canvas. They use Canvas, you know, so I've so I think that that'll be good for I think more professors are able to do that now. And I think that that'll be a good resource for students. Um, and I think that. um you know, it's it's nice it's nice to have an option where if a student can't attend class, they can zoom in. I think that'll be something that'll become more frequent. You know, oh, I can't come in today. I had to be home for X, Y, and Z, but let me just join the class anyway. So there'll be. I, I'm hoping that the in-person aspect is going to go back because I think it's nice for students to engage and, and be in person and be physically on campus. But I think a lot of like the positives of those online resources are still going to be there for students, which will be a good thing. Melissa, thank you so much. For You're spending welcome. time today. Um, we've been speaking with Melissa Huey, Assistant Professor in the Behavioral Sciences Department from the College of Arts and Sciences as part of the Great Teaching Series. This conversation's been recorded and will be available on the Center for Teaching and Learning webpage, nyt.edu slash CPL. If you'd like to be featured in the Great Teaching Series, please email the Center for Teaching and Learning at cpl at nyt.edu, or better yet, fill out the form at bit.ly slash great dash teaching. Thank, Thank you. you for having me.